your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do. Join me in turning to the book of Romans, chapter number 6. Romans, chapter number 6. There are any number of motivations that would compel us to come to a service like this on a day like today. For some, this is true universally around the world, I suppose. There are those who will feel motivated or compelled to attend a service like this by nostalgia, memories of being with a precious mother, father, grandparents, hunting eggs on Easter weekend and singing the songs traditional to our celebrations of of Easter. Others who, because they identify with a certain tradition, denomination, or church would feel compelled. Even culturally, there are certain motivations that sort of generate this interest we might have to be a part of a service like this, but for the church of Jesus Christ, it is worth reminding ourselves, noting together in this assembly, that we are here because Jesus is alive. In fact, every Sunday when we gather, you understand, we gather on that day because that is the day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. But especially on this Sunday, we remember the physical bodily resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ upon which all of human history hangs. We've been talking for the past few weeks about three primary benefits of the resurrection. I would encourage you to give thought to the question of what difference the resurrection makes to your life personally. I hope that for you, resurrection is more than just a reason to celebrate, to go through all of what the culture would suggest we ought to go through during this weekend or this holiday season. My greater interest, and I hope yours as well, is in the difference, the impact, the influence, the effect of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on your life personally. And we've identified three primary benefits of the resurrection. The first of those is our salvation. In fact, it is the foremost benefit of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead after three days cold and alone in a garden tomb. The product of that victory is our victory over sin, the assurance of our resurrection, the gift of salvation. We tend to emphasize in our hearts and minds the cross, a concept we've talked at great length about over the past several weeks. But I would remind you that there were many who died by Roman crucifixion. There is but one who is raised from the dead on the third day, and his name is Jesus. It was the sinless perfection he carried with him to the cross, and his victory in walking forth from that grave that substantiates everything Jesus does on the cross, carrying away our sin and accrediting to our account his perfect righteousness. The first and foremost benefit of Jesus' resurrection is our salvation. Our salvation hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says that apart from the resurrection of Jesus, our faith is in vain. Our preaching is futile. And we are a pitiful lot of people. We are here today as believers in Christ because Jesus was raised from the dead. Statistically, there are more than 4,200 world religions. There is but one empty grave. Brothers and sisters, that is why we are here. 
The second primary benefit of the resurrection for us, one that we dealt with last Sunday, is the physical resurrection of this body. Now I want you to get this, and I hope that this is coming home for you in fresh and exciting ways. When we talk about the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection, we're not talking about lasting influence. We're not talking about leaving a legacy. We're not talking about a living memory beyond the span of our natural life. We're talking about the physical bodily resurrection of our flesh, blood, and bones. There is coming a day, a day assured to us by the resurrection of Jesus, when this mortal body will be clothed in immortality, when I will walk flesh and blood and sinew again by the power of Jesus' resurrection. And we've noted this fearlessness, this sense of invincibility in the New Testament, whereby people would say in the face of persecution and even potential death, you may take this life. At later times, they would even note this in a way of encouraging faithful obedience on their part. If there is any pleasure we might forego here, even if our actual lives are taken away, God will give it back and all the more on the day of our resurrection. That's the second primary benefit of Jesus' resurrection, our physical resurrection. The third we only alluded to last Sunday but I want us to focus a bit on this morning. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, by resurrection power in us as believers, we have a new ability to obey and honor Christ in all our lives. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus, you and I are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are cold. We are unresponsive. We have no capacity for obedience. But because of the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit in us, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, we have been liberated from our sin and freed for obedience to God. Whereas we were once enslaved to sin, we have now become the servants of the Most High God. This is the benefit of the resurrection. And Paul manages to capture these three and more. In the 11 verses that we're going to read together. If you found your way to Romans 6, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Romans 6, the Apostle Paul is our human author, writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. The Bible says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we've been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. 
Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. In the next few minutes, I want to show you three basic principles from the verses we've just now read. Here they are. Number one, we have been spiritually joined with Jesus in his death. In a spiritual sense, when you believe the gospel for your salvation, you are joined together in his death by crucifixion. So much so that the Bible would speak of our dying to ourselves as paralleling the death of Jesus on the cross. You are no longer enslaved to the lust of your flesh. You are no longer the Lord of your life. You have died to yourself by the power of the gospel. We are spiritually joined with Jesus in his death on the cross. Number two. Just as we are spiritually joined with Jesus in his death, we are likewise joined with Jesus in his resurrection. This is, by the way, where we find this new moral ability. You are dead in your sins and trespasses, but you have been made alive in Christ Jesus, joined with him in his death, dying to self raised in the likeness of his resurrection, raised to walk in the newness of life. We've been joined with Jesus in his death. We've been joined with Jesus in his resurrection. And the third principle is born forth from the first two. We are to count ourselves or consider ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. In short, by the power of the resurrection, everything has now changed for us. Look to verse one. Now Paul lists in verses one through three, there is this series of four questions. They're sort of semi-rhetorical questions. He's sort of building an argument here. In one case, he can't resist himself and he provides an emphatic answer to the question. He begins this way in verse one, what should we say then? And in some ways, that question is asked on the basis of everything that has been said in Romans chapters 1 through 5. In response to the argument that's now well established, what should we say? What will our response be? In chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans, Paul is establishing this single principle. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the climax of chapters 1 through 3. Romans chapter 3, verses, verse number rather, 23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now I hear that used in certain circles as something of a justification for our sinful way. We sort of use it in the same way we use the little catchphrase or slogan, nobody's perfect. But Paul doesn't issue that statement in Romans 3.23 to absolve us of our responsibility for our sin. The fact that all mankind has sinned is not good news for us. It doesn't mean that our obligations have been lessened with regards to paying the penalty for our sin. 
In fact, it means that all of mankind is condemned, is damned, is to be judged under the hand of God's righteous judgment. Paul begins in Romans chapter 1 with examples of those sins regarded even among the Gentiles as the most heinous. He speaks of those given over to sexual perversion, those given to the most obvious examples of idolatry, those given to the worship of creatures rather than the creator to begin to press this notion that indeed all have sinned. He begins in the extreme. Those examples where there might be agreement, a consensus that these are examples of unrighteousness. Such examples exist in our culture as well. There are certain sins we might identify even in this assembly. And there'd be agreement across the spectrum that these represent acts of great ungodliness. Paul doesn't stop there. In fact, he moves in chapter 2 to a more Jewish focus. What he does there is, is to identify those who make judgment about others. And what he notes is that your ability to make judgment about right and wrong in someone else's life doesn't alleviate you of your responsibility or make you any better. In fact, it is only an acknowledgement that you know right from wrong and therefore have enhanced your responsibility with regards to, the, to obedience to the word of God. Those who regard themselves as righteous, the self-righteous, as Paul describes them, are under equal judgment with those heinous, obvious, extreme examples of sin cited in Romans chapter 1. Just in case the point was not clear enough, Paul begins chapter 3 with a long series of quotations from the Old Testament to press upon this notion that we are in a grave position. Paul says, there is none righteous. No one is accepted. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. The poison of venomous snakes is under our mouth. We are, it seems, irreparably broken. And then to verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is a predicament, right? If we are sinners. God is holy. If this chasm is fixed between us and our unrighteousness, the perfect righteousness of God, how are we to remedy this predicament? Paul goes on to tell us in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul explains what is called the doctrine of justification by faith. That we, by faith in Jesus, may be justified. That's legal terminology. In other words, by believing on Jesus through the gift of grace, God does something in our life to change the verdict on the last day. What he does is to clothe us in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. It is that at the cross, not only is Jesus carrying away our unrighteousness, he is at the same time accrediting to our account his perfect righteousness. We are there being covered in the blood of Jesus. We are there being clothed in the righteousness of God. So that on the last day when we stand before the judgment bar of God, it is not our unrighteousness the Father observes, but the perfect righteousness of his Son. In a judicial sense, by faith in Jesus, you are made to be as righteous as Jesus himself by faith 
in the message of the gospel. That is a remarkable reality. And then Paul illustrates this in Romans chapter 5. Using the example of Adam's sin in the garden, the entrance of sin into the world. And here's what he notes. That by Adam's sin, all mankind fell. In fact, on some level, and he seems to say it in this extreme sort of way, you and I are responsible for Adam's sin in the garden. And if your reaction to that is, that seems unfair, that I would be held accountable for what someone else has done, that's exactly the kind of response Paul seeks to elicit from you in the reading of that passage. Because what he moves to say in the next few verses is this. In the same way, you are accountable for something someone else did. Now it's worth noting that you've sinned on your own and are culpable for those decisions as young people and certainly as adults. But the point here is you're responsible for what someone else did. In the same way, descendants of Adam are responsible for the transgression of our father Adam. The gospel is inviting us into a new adopted family to know the fatherhood of Jesus over all our lives and to be credited with the righteousness of someone else, namely Jesus Christ. So you don't want fairness. What you want is grace. And that's exactly what we stand to receive in the message of the gospel. Accredited with Adam's misdeeds. By faith in Jesus, accredited with the perfect righteousness of God. And so Paul asks in Romans 6 and verse number 1, what do we say now in response to this? And he seems to be addressing an ongoing issue. In fact, it's an ongoing issue 2,000 years later. There are those who misinterpret the message of grace as though it affords them license to continue in their sin. But that is not the function of grace at all. In fact, we think of grace sometimes, at least, in all the wrong ways. If you leave today and you're pulled over on the way home, obviously speeding, and you receive leniency from the trooper, you might say of him, once you leave there, he was gracious with me. He showed me grace. But that kind of passive grace, that kind of leniency, is never what the Bible intends. In fact, there's an active grace at work in the gospel, a grace that's that's powerful, a grace that enables and equips, a grace that empowers us to obey the command of God. What shall we say then? Should we understand grace as license to sin? Paul goes on in the second question asking further with greater specificity, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply or abound? Now, we would probably not be so bold as to say it this way. Some did in Paul's day. We should sin more that grace may abound. We wouldn't at least say it that way. But by virtue of the way some people live their lives, it certain, certainly seems to be the philosophy, philosophy they themselves have adopted. This is the one question Paul answers emphatically in our passage. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. In fact, Paul seems to suggest that this is the wrong question altogether. He asks the more appropriate question next. How can we, who die to sin, still live in it? The question is not can we. 
The question is, how in the world could we, given what God has done in you? And listen, this is not just about what is reasonable. This is about a real ability. I don't know how, having undergone the transforming work of God's Holy Spirit, you could walk away from that exchange unchanged, anything less than deeply impacted by that experience. Now, it comes progressively at times. There are those instantaneous changes wrought by the power of the gospel. And then there is that slow and sometimes grinding experience of sanctification over a great many days and weeks and months and even years. But I will never believe that a person can truly embrace the truth of the gospel without being forever changed by that experience. No man can be touched by the power of the gospel and walk away from that encounter unfazed by that experience. Paul goes on in verse 3. Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's so much going on in verse number 3. Paul uses, first of all, the language of baptism. You've had the opportunity to observe baptism in our service this morning. Have you considered much what that symbolizes, what that's communicating? Baptism is itself a teaching ordinance. We observe baptism together and not in isolation so that we can be encouraged and exhorted, reminded and trained in the gospel by the symbolism of the ordinance itself. Not symbolic of the washing away of our sins, but the work of Jesus on our behalf for our salvation. One's immersion in water. It's symbolic of Jesus' immersion in that garden grave. It's symbolic of our death to self and our immersion in an earthly grave. But so too is once coming forth from that water. Symbolic of Jesus coming forth from the grave in great victory. Our being raised to walk in the newness of life. This is what's symbolized in baptism. And one of the interesting things about verse number three is the way the terminology of baptism is used. There's a handful of passages in the New Testament like this, where baptism and salvation or conversion are used almost interchangeably, almost synonymously. And this is, by the way, not to say that baptism saves you. There are real distinctions between baptism and our conversion. But in the 27 books of the New Testament, there is no representation of this idea that one coming to faith in Christ would be reluctant whatsoever with regards to identifying with Jesus or identifying with the church through the expression of believer's baptism. This is a first and primary way that we identify with Christ, a way that we give public expression to what God has done in us. I have little doubt there are those among us who need to consider strongly, likewise giving public expression to what God has done invisibly in your hearts. Know you not, Paul says, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now, in response to the question of whether we should continue in sin that grace may abound, should we just persist in sin? Paul says, this is an impossibility for the true believer. Because it's symbolized in our baptism and at the heart of the message of the gospel that in order to come to Jesus, we must die to ourself. We are identifying with, 
We are spiritually joined together with Jesus in his death, dying to self. You and I, as believers, are no longer the Lord of our life. We make far too much of critical decisions at times as believers. You and I don't have decisions to make. Jesus is the Lord of our life. There are some benefits to being the subject of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Namely, there's not a lot of decision making left in the process. There may be some discernment required on our part to know how to leverage or make application of the principles of God's word, but you and I no longer call the shots. You're a lousy Lord, but Jesus is a great one. We're now subjects to his authority. We've come under his power, under his authority as the king of all kings. We have, in coming to Christ, died to ourself, died to our personal interest, and died to any earthly ambition. We are clay in the hands of the potter. Don't you know, Paul says, that we have identified with Jesus in his death, even in the very act of baptism. What he seems to be indicating is that this initial step of faith, this is not a 400-level gospel conversation. In your very baptism, the first thing you do as a believer, you are acknowledging symbolically that you have died to personal interest and been joined with Jesus forever. So in verse 4, Paul continues, Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. It's not just that you died to yourself. That sounds painful, right? That sounds like great sacrifice. Pressed to its extreme, it can sound a bit like rule-keeping. But the beauty of the gospel is that we've been invited, yes, to die to ourselves, but perhaps more importantly, to walk in the newness of life afforded us by the resurrection of Jesus. Filled with his Holy Spirit. Do you realize what this intends? Not only have you died to your personal interest, you have now been empowered. You have now been given the charge, the ability, to do what God has required of you. Realizing apart from Jesus, even our petty acts of righteousness are judged by God to be as filthy rags. My personal assessment and by observation, most of our so-called works of righteousness apart from Christ are motivated by pride, by egotism, or by an addiction to the praise of men. But now made alive in Christ by the power of the resurrection, we have this new ability to do what would bring honor and glory and praise to God. One of the understated, undersold, and lesser appreciated promises of the gospel is this. And it's directly connected to being raised to walk in the newness of life. Neither you nor I have to continue living the way we used to live because of the promise of the gospel. We are who we are. 
Not because of self-will, not because of personal determination, not because of multi-step programs, but because of the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in us. The answer to your need for reform, the answer to your need to break the chains of addiction is the gospel of Jesus Christ that promises an ability to die to self, to be raised to walk in the newness of life. The very power that raised Jesus from a cold and dark grave abides within the very members of every blood-bought believer, empowering us to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Power God invites us by the gospel to enjoy. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Look at verse 5. For if we've been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. L looking forward to a resurrection that yet awaits us. There's this principle in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. If you get this, it makes sense of a lot of things that may seem somewhat complicated. It's always referred to very simply in biblical study circles as already and not yet. There are certain things that are foretold or described that are already and yet they maintain this not yet dynamic. Let me give you an example. In the preaching ministry of Jesus, in fact, the beginning of the preaching ministry of Jesus in Mark 1.15, Jesus says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's how the preaching ministry of Jesus starts. He's saying there, the language of the kingdom at hand means the kingdom is here, the kingdom is near, the kingdom is now. And yet so much of what Jesus says in his preaching ministry would seem to indicate that the kingdom is yet to come. Well, which is it? The reality is that the kingdom is now. Anywhere there's an assembly, a gathering of the people of God, anywhere there's an individual who's entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ for salvation, the kingdom is here. The very mission statement, the agenda, the focus of our church and all of our ministry efforts is to see his kingdom advance across the street and around the world. The kingdom is now. But it's also very true that there is coming a day when at the sounding of the trumpet and the shout of the archangel, as sure as he came the first time, Jesus is coming again to visit his people in their distress, to exact justice in all the world, and to inaugurate in all its fullness the kingdom of God he promised from the very beginning. It's already, and at the same time it is not yet. Our salvation operates the same way. It is already and in some respects, it is not yet. The moment of your conversion, when God opened your heart and gave you the gift of faith, when you believed on him, turning away from your sin, he saved you in that moment. You are assuredly saved by the power of the gospel as God grants the gift of faith. But it's also true in a very real sense that you are very much being sanctified. You are very much being saved along the way. You are raised to walk in the moment of your conversion in the newness of life. And yet there remains for us the fullness of our physical bodily resurrection from the dead. On the last day when that angel shouts and that trumpet blasts, this mortal will be clothed in immortality. 
on that last day, this corruption will be overcome by incorruption. God will give back the life given in service to his kingdom on the last day. Our salvation, our resurrection is both already and it is not yet. Which means that we're living in light, yes, fearlessly of a physical bodily resurrection. But at the present hour, we may live with gospel boldness because we have been enlivened. We have been awakened by resurrection power. The whole passage is an invitation to live in light of the resurrection. What the resurrection has already done in you and what it will do on the last day. Paul says in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body might be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Not only have you been liberated by grace to obey God, to obey in a way you could not before, but the claims of sin, the penalty of sin, the debt of sin has been abolished because you've died to yourself, joined with Jesus in his crucifixion. In another Pauline passage in the Corinthian correspondence, Paul uses marriage to demonstrate this principle. He says there's two people who are married and one passes away. And the obligations, the responsibilities of the spouse cease at the moment of their partner's death so that it becomes acceptable even something worthy of celebration that they be remarried or married to another. The obligations of the law of marriage cease with one's death. And there was a time when you could illustrate this principle of debts passing with our passing, but that's sort of a thing of the past. In America, we've created things like a death tax. You can even die and still have bills to pay in our culture now. But the institution of slavery becomes the model, the example of that here in these verses. What Paul is saying is that the dominion, the authority, the power of the master ceases to exist with the death of his subject. Paul says, given the reality that we've been joined with Jesus in his death, given that we have died to ourself, to self-interest, and to earthly ambitions, all of our obligation, all of the penalty for our sin has long since passed away. We only now enjoy the freedom afforded us by the grace of Jesus Christ. If we died with Christ, verse 8 says, we believe that we will live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. As a believer, you don't have to be fearful of death. Now listen, I'm not a fool. I know that death can be a frightful thing on some level. I mean, you only experience death once, right? There's not a soul in this room who's ever died before in the truest sense of the word. It's a frightening thing on some level. I get it. But there is an air of invincibility about the church with an abiding confidence in our heart that the life we might give away that may even be robbed of us here will be given back and all the more on the day of our Savior's resurrection. Verse 9 says, we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For in light of the fact that he died he died to sin once for all, but in light of the fact 
that he lives, he lives to God. So you too, Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 captures what Paul intends to be the application of everything that is said in verses 1 through 10. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves as believers joined with Jesus in his death, joined with Jesus in his resurrection, having died to self-interest, having been raised to walk in the newness of life. Every Easter season, perhaps the thought that haunts me most is the knowledge that there will inevitably be scores of people who will file through worship centers just like ours under the deep conviction that they are themselves right with God when everything is wrong about their understanding. There are those who will gather in worship services like this one. No doubt there have been those throughout the course of this day gathered here and sang along with the songs and nodded at the appropriate places in the sermon, and yet their hearts are far from God. Now, I want it to be abundantly clear this morning that no person is saved by the faith of their mama or their daddy or their grandparents or even their childhood baptism. No person is saved by their membership in a church their affiliation with a certain denomination or tradition. Every individual, man and woman and boy and girl, must themselves account for what it is that they'll do with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Either out of active rejection, indifference, or a warm-hearted embrace of the message of the gospel, every soul in this room will determine in the moments just ahead what to do with Jesus. Now, I want you to know, I want you to leave this morning with a clear understanding of the message of the gospel. A gospel that tells us that God looked upon the world with such love and affection that he would send his son, Jesus, born of a virgin, would clothe himself in flesh and walk among us without stain or spot, without blemish. Jesus would live more than 30 years on this earth without sin, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. Everything God required of us, in fact, everything God required of humanity, Jesus met every stipulation, every obligation in absolute perfection. In spite of his perfection, they nailed him to a cross, not for crimes that he had done, but for my sin and for your sin. From some perspectives, Jesus died on the cross as the victim of an unjust system, the Roman government. From other perspectives, Jesus died at the hands of an unruly religious establishment, the Jews and their system. But the reality is that Jesus died on the cross willfully for the joy that was set before him at the hands of the Father, drinking the bitter cup of God's wrath against us. Jesus took our place on the cross, buried outside the city of Jerusalem on the third day. Mary and the others heard the angelic announcement, why seekest thou the living among the dead? Christ is not here. He is risen. 
and ascending to the right hand of the Father, that position of power in his resurrection, he beckons with nail-scarred hands that we would come to him, that we would drink freely from the fountain of the water of life. Brothers and sisters, you individually must come. There was never a time in my life when if you'd asked me, I would have said anything other than that I believed in God, in the existence of heaven and hell. I would have affirmed the authority of God's word that I was nearly 20 years old before the gospel of Jesus Christ took hold of my heart in that transformative way described in our passage. Brothers and sisters, listen carefully. All that you've been longing for what you've been looking for, what you have so desperately longed for under the weight and burden of sin can only be found in Jesus. The invitation is yet again that you would drink deeply from the fountain of the water of life and the only prerequisite is a thirsty soul. Come to him. Come, come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for the gospel, for our resurrected King Jesus. God, I pray that you give each person here eyes to see the infinite worth of your son Jesus. That they would behold him as that pearl of great price for which they'd sell all their earthly goods to possess him as their great treasure. I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear that not a soul would leave this place without a firm understanding of the message of the gospel, whether they'd receive it or reject it. May they know and understand full well what you've done moving heaven and earth on our behalf that we might know you in your fullness. God, I pray that you give us hearts well-conditioned to receive the gift of faith. God, we ask that you would save some in the next moments, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.